good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you this Lord's Day. For many of you, you know, I was um, lucky enough to be born and raised in probably one of the most beautiful, most desirable places in the United States, if not the world, and that's the islands of Hawaii. And uh, it was a wonderful experience growing up there. And oftentimes we have visitors, obviously, to the islands of Hawaii. And oftentimes visitors equate beautiful with safe. And that's not always the case. Sometimes beautiful things can be dangerous. Sometimes beautiful things can actually be deadly. Uh, kind of a common story growing up in the islands as a young man was stories about howlies. That's basically what we call all of you that visited our island. People, foreigners, would come to the islands and get swept out to the farther parts of the ocean because they couldn't appreciate the difference between the ocean's beauty and the ocean's danger. Sometimes the things that draw us in, that entice us, can also betray us. If you're familiar with the islands of Hawaii, we have some examples of this right here. For example, one of the most beautiful things out in the coral reefs are the things called vana, uh, sea urchins, right? And they can, they're on the spectrum. Some are just painful if you happen to be climbing on the coral or stepping on it and you step on one of them or grab one of them and one of those spikes might get into your finger and they continue to grow. They can go from just being painful to poisonous to toxic or even particularly the flower vana is deadly if you don't get the venom out in time. Another example of this around my islands were the jellyfish and the Portuguese man-of-war that were everywhere. These are one of the most mesmerizing things to be in the ocean water with, particularly the Portuguese man-of-war. They just seem like beautiful, iridescent, purple-blue objects of grace and tranquility just floating along the surface until one of them wraps around your arm or your neck or your torso or your legs and they stick their venom in you and it's extremely painful. You end up writhing on the beach with your friends peeing on you, right? Um, <laughs> it's, it's the only time you getting peed on by your friends is a sign of care and affection. <laughs> Probably the most wonderful, dramatic illustration of beauty that can just deceive us and betray us is that of the anglerfish. Now, I use this cartoon drawing because the real thing's kind of scary. Yes, okay, look at that thing. I don't want to look at it, right? I mean, actually, it's kind of like a car accident. You kind of want to look at it, but you really don't want to look at it. So the anglerfish, if you're familiar with it, has got this iridescent light in the deep sea that draws other prey to its light because it's so beautiful, so desirable, until it goes into those jaws. It's a frightening thing, but a wonderful metaphor that not all beauties are good for us. So let's get rid of that. Actually, let's look at it again, because that is kind of, I mean, look at that thing, right? Wow. It's like a bad accident. You kind of want to look at it, but you don't. It's one of those things. Anyway, I'm not just talking about physical beauties, of course. There's a principle here that this kind of beauty that draws us in but then can betray us is on the whole spectrum of things. It can be from romantic attachments. A woman finds a man that's too good to be true, and it turns out he is too good to be true. He's a loser. He lives with his parents in their basement, right? A financial deal that promises wealth and security turns out to be a scam. A politician that promises prosperity on the campaign trail only delivers frustration once they are in office. All of these are an example of a beauty that draws us but only lets us down in the end. One of the key teachings of the Bible is that we have to be aware of beauty that isn't. Things that entice us, things that allure us, things that draw us, things that can get past our rational thinking and get to our heart's desires, our wants, our passions and lusts, and they can just lead us into the jaws of death. Whether it's a physical, spiritual, emotional, financial, or all of those things, 
Not all the beauty in this world is for our good. In fact, in this fallen world, we are often enticed by the very things that will enslave. And outside the kingdom of Christ and his rule, beauty often betrays us. But one of the great promises of the gospel, one of the great things we are reading about in the book of Revelation is that's not the way it's always going to be. There will be one day a world where there is just beauty and beauty and desire abounds and the things that draw us and the things that entice us will not betray us, but they will actually fulfill us. They will actually flourish us. And we know that in part because of what the Bible teaches us here in these later chapters of Revelation. And this morning and next week, we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 17 this morning and Revelation chapter 18 next week as we talk about beauties that betray and desires that can lead us astray. So if you have a Bible, open up to Revelation chapter 17. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you need to use one of our pew Bibles, that's on page 974. Page 974, we're going to look at Revelation 17. In our text this morning... We are reintroduced to um, Babylon, who made her first appearance in our study back in uh, chapter 14 of this book. And keeping with Revelation's recursive style, in chapter 14, when we were introduced to her, we were already reading of her doom. Here, now, in chapter 17, we're learning more about her and the cause of her doom. And next week is a real, more of an in-depth study of the actual process in greater detail of her fall and collapse. Babylon is a very significant concept in the Bible, particularly in the book of Revelation. So in order for you to kind of understand how John, how the Spirit of God is using the phrase Babylon, I want to unpack it. So there's four points I want to make this morning is number one, talking about Babylon and the concept of Babylon in Revelation in particular. And then we're going to jump into the actual chapter itself. We're going to look at the appeal of Babylon's beauty and then talk about the temporary nature of that beauty, and then finally how even Babylon itself, this concept, is betrayed in verses 15 through 18. So let's talk about the first thing. Let's talk about Babylon itself. And if you're familiar with the Bible, Babylon is certainly a historical place. As a matter of fact, we know its ruins in modern-day Iraq. But Babylon is much more than a historical city. It is an image, a metaphor, a symbol, uh, and has a lot of conceptual weight involved in it. In some sense, think of it this way, Babylon is theological shorthand for all the things of this world, the worldliness, the sensu 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 sensuality, is that a word? Is that a word? Sensuality? Sensuality, worldliness, and, and desires of our heart that are in opposition to God, his kingdom, and his people. Now, the actual historical roots of Babylon, we actually come across it very early in the Bible. As early as Genesis chapter 10, starting in verse 10, um, under the cursed line of Ham, Nimrod himself is a hunter who founds a city called Babel. It's the same Babel that's connected to the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. So Babylon as a concept is all the way through from Genesis to Revelation. Not only does it symbolize and is a metaphor or this motif of our opposition and arrogance to God... It simultaneously is, is a symbol and motif of our opposition to God and the pandering to our own egotistical desires. And we see that clearly in Nebuchadnezzar's claim in Daniel chapter 4. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, whoops, as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? 
So you can see the hubris and the, the arrogance of Nebuchadnezzar because of his Babylon that he's made for his glory and majesty. That's just symptomatic of the way the world is in opposition of God. It's not about God and worshiping him, but it's about our glory, our majesty, and Babylon as a city embodied that feel. So as we get to Revelation 17, this worldly power, this desire for uh, living for ourselves, this seductive call of selfishness is embodied here. Kind of like John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, all that is in the world the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life that are personified in Babylon, called the prostitute. This woman we read about in Revelation 17. Now, Babylon, as you've heard even from this pulpit, can refer to different places. I think in chapter 14, uh, El, uh, David was talking about have Babylon as a reference to Jerusalem. It's very true. To our original readers, it was also strongly a reference to Rome. The reason being is that it's not just a, they would have known, it's not just referring to a city, but a concept as well. Kind of like we might think of um, Las Vegas, right? What do, what do we nickname Las Vegas? Sin City, right? And they've got the motto, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It, it's, a, it's a city known for indulgence and partying and all those kinds of things. Babylon was an embodiment of that. And to the original readers, they would have thought of Rome with all of, its, with all of its immoralities and all of its luxuries and all of its idolatries. The ancient world, you remember from our studies in chapter 2 and 3, was completely awash with Rome's influence. The seven letters to the seven churches, we realize that you could not be fully involved in the social and the economic and the political, certainly the spiritual life of first century society without also being involved in pagan festivals, sexual rituals, and worship of false deities. It was part and parcel to the way they lived their lives. To be a part of that world, you needed to be in Babylon. To, to run with John's metaphor, the, the metaphor of the Holy Spirit's giving us, to be a part of the world meant you needed to be in bed with this prostitute. She is the counterfeit church of the bride of Christ, seducing all the world to worship at the altar of self and any other false god that promises to fulfill their sensual desires. If you were going to buy, if you were going to sell, if you were going to participate in that world system, you needed to be a citizen of that carnal kingdom known as Babylon. But we can see why, in a certain sense, Babylon to them was attractive because if you were participating with Babylon, that was the key to pleasures of sensuality, prosperity, and material wealth of their culture. The early world would have looked to Rome as the source and the guarantee of economic power, military strength, and material comfort. And at this time, many Christians, if not most Christians, were called atheists. Well, that's surprising to hear from, from our vantage point. But they were called atheists because the Christians would reject worship of any of the gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon. They believed that there was only one god, and so the people called them atheists. Furthermore, Christians were called the haters of mankind because they wouldn't participate in those compromised forms of social society. And so Christians were looked down upon severely. This is, is behind some of what Peter says in 1 Peter 4. 
For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. In other words, you're done with those things. You've learned better because now you are in Christ. What the Gentiles do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. And so there was pressure, even amongst some professing Christians, that would argue that they can participate in these idolatrous festivals and these, these acts of sexual immorality. They can be a part of their society and culture, and it is actually acceptable. The spirit of Babylon. Keep your finger in Revelation 17. Just go back with me to Revelation 2. You remember our study of the church of Pergamum, the church of Thyatira. Jesus talked about this compromising spirit and had harsh words about it. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 14, to the church of Pergamum. Listen to what's going on there and what Jesus has to say about it. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you, Jesus says. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So if you remember, Balaam was a false prophet from Numbers 25, and he was hired by the king of Moab, Balak, to somehow stop and thwart God's children, the Israelites. So that they might, and listen to the way he tried to stumble them, they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So we have that happening in Pergamum. Look a few verses down in verse 20. A different church now, the church in Thyatira. This is what the Lord says. But I have this against you, Revelation 2.20, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, I want to be clear. The window dressing's a little bit different. It's Jezebel and Balaam. But the spirit behind it is the same spirit of compromise, the same spirit of, of worldly sensual desire that is encapsulated by the spirit of Babylon. And friends, things are, much, are not much different today, are they? There are those amongst us, churches and Christians, arguing that, look, we can fit in. We don't have to hold to these kind of puritanical, rigid interpretations of the Bible. We, we can go with the times. And so we lose our grasp on what the Bible teaches on God's beautifully different but complementary design of man and woman as the roles of gender in our society begin the flux and we are challenged and pressured to change our views on what men and women are, whether it's our gender roles or human sexuality, how churches and people are bowing the knee to cultural pressure to fit in, to be accepted, rather than loving people well and proclaiming hard but difficult and difficult truths in a gracious and winsome manner. That compromise, that spirit of Babylon is with us just as it was back then. So Babylon, back to our text, becomes the symbol of all things worldly, pleasurable, beautiful, but is so deceptive because it attains these things and are promising these things without and in opposition to God himself. In other words, you can have all these things, and you don't need God. Or you can have all these things, but you rebel against God because he's holding out against you on these very things. <clears throat> so that's Babylon. That's the concept of Babylon. And what makes Babylon so dangerous is that it exists in the recesses of our own heart. And now we're going to look at the deceptive appeal of Babylon here in Revelation 17. 
I'm just going to read the first six verses and we'll jump into it. Then one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, that's what we studied last week, came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of the, whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. So that's a phrase just saying, whether it's the kings of the earth or the dwellers on the earth, everyone, great and small, all in between, have partaken of Babylon's uh, immorality. Verse 3. And the Spirit carried me away in the Spirit to, into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Okay, let's stop there. That's quite a vision, isn't it? That is a pretty overwhelming and somewhat impressive vision of this woman sitting astriding upon this amazing beast. By the way, if you've been in our study, this beast should sound, should sound familiar because this is the same beast from Revelation 13. If you compare Revelation 13.1 with Revelation 17.3, the descriptions of this beast are identical. So John is pulling together different visions and drawing another picture for us. And what is that vision? This here in Revelation 17 is a combination of what we saw in 13, and that was the power of the state, the power of a secular authority in opposition to God, now combined with the allure of the world pictured by this woman, Babylon, the great, the prostitute. We have the beast that represents power and persecution and intimidation, and we have this beautiful woman arrayed with all fine luxuries representing luxury, seduction, and, and just all manner of lusts. By the way, that's a theme woven all through the book of Revelation, isn't it? That the enemy of God, Satan, goes primarily against the people of God in one of two ways. Either he takes the form of the beast, and we see that, the power and the persecution, oftentimes of governments crushing the church, or of the prostitute alluring the world. One destroying the witness of the saints, one destroying the purity of the saints. You recall with me the principle we laid out from Revelation 13 of the beast. Whatever you fear, that's the thing you're going to worship. Whatever you fear, that's what you inevitably end up worshiping. It's a principle all through Scripture. If you fear poverty, you will worship money and success. If you fear being alone or left out, you're going to worship fitting in and people's approval. If you fear sickness and death, you're going to worship health and safety. Regardless of what you might say with your mouth, regardless of how you might say that you are a Christian, you will do whatever it takes to satisfy that God. Because in all intents and purposes, when that God rules you, when fear rules you, you're no longer a Christian as much as you might be a Babylonian, worshiping another God altogether. That's why the Bible says the remedy for that is to fear the Lord. 
It's one of the common commands throughout all the Scripture, the fear of the Lord, because Scripture knows we will worship the thing that we fear. Well, that's the way, one of the ways the enemy gets us, right? Power, intimidation, persecution. Make your life hard and you will relent. On the other hand, if that doesn't get you, he has another ploy. Just as effective, maybe more effective, completely different, which is why so often people miss it. If the beast can't do it, the prostitute can. If I can't scare you and make you scare you and intimidate you, I can seduce you and lull you by my delights and delicacies, my comforts, my fantasies. And so, friends, if we fear, we worship what we fear. We also worship what we desire. Whether that is sex or money or health or long life or fame or riches, we will worship what we desire. And if you're paying attention, by the way, your desires are just the flip side of your fear. Tell me what you are afraid of, what you fear, and I can tell you what you desire. In the same way, tell me what you desire more than anything, and I know what your fears are. And the enemy knows just as well. If he can't get you through force and intimidation, he can get you through comforts and seduction. Which is why the Bible continually tells us that our greatest fear and our greatest desire should be the Lord himself. Because until he occupies that in our hearts, that he is our greatest fear, he is our greatest desire, he knows we will be ruled and ruined by the 10,000 other fears and desires in your life. And so he says, fear me above all things, desire me above all things, and you will be okay. A couple years ago, I don't know, maybe some of you went to it, we had a uh, conference here on biblical counseling, and one of the speakers, his father, I got a chance to talk to him, he's from Houston, his father was a former con man before he became a Christian. And we were having this great conversation, because I mean, how often do you meet somebody who, who's, you know, his father was a con man? So I was asking him to tell me all about his dad, and he said, my dad could con anybody of anything. He was brilliant at it. But what was so brilliant was his tactic was so simple, such brilliant human psychology. He said, my dad would say, I could con anyone, and it's very easy. I just need to know what they want or what they're afraid of, and I got my mark. That's how easy it is to get conned. All you got to know is what someone wants or what they're afraid of, and you got a sucker on the line. Right Now, by virtue, he also said that there's somebody I can't con. The only person I cannot con was the person who didn't want anything or the person who wasn't afraid of anything. That person is undeceivable. Bad grammar, but that's what he said. So the question is, how do we be, get to a place where we don't want or fear anything? Well, Augustine, the church father, had an answer to this. Not about being conned, but this is what he said. Our hearts, O oh Lord, are restless until it finds its rest in you. Friends, our hearts were made for the Lord, and they are restless until they rest in him. But so often in life, we are trying to find our rest in so many other desires or so many other fears, and they never deliver but always betray C.S. Lewis, the Oxford professor, said this, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. 
Friends, what are, what, what are you feeding into your heart? Where are you trying to find your heart's rest? Where are, you, where are you aiming the sights of your life? Are you, without knowing it, being a mark because you want or fear things you shouldn't? We see here our fear and desires as we look in the book of Revelation. They often work hand in hand for our own destruction. We see that at a grand scale here in the Roman Empire where imperial power oftentimes undergirded pleasure and wealth. And today it is the same. It is the same where we have our hopes put in the power of the state that will deliver us our utopian peace and prosperity. Just last week I was listening to, or listening to the news, at the G20 summit over in Scotland. Huge protests huge protests, and the protesters were saying, we need a global government, a global government that can enforce and usher in the environmental policies that will save the planet. Yeah, and, and you know, as I said last week, okay, I'm, 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 I'm for saving the planet. I think it's a good idea. But if you know history, you recognize that cry. Steve's nodding his head because he knows that cry because that was the same cry that created the communist state. The cry to create a worker's paradise where equality for all, giving power to a central government so committed to the utopian vision, seeded by Marxism, people gave totalitarian powers to government leaders. Now, totalitarianism was not always a bad word, right? Totalitarianism simply meant total powers, total authority. They gave totalitarian powers to governing leaders to usher in, by any means necessary, the new world. And it cost 100 million European lives. And friends, the prostitute and the beast still cooperate today. And it always looks good on the outside. Look at verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup. Friends, it always looks good. Our desires always look good on the outside. At a national scale, all these humanistic visions always seem good, whether it's for a, a worker's paradise, a, a greener planet, a third Reich, diversity, equality, inclusion. All of it looks good and always ends badly. Because look what's in the cup, full of her abominations and the impurities of her sexual immoralities. Friends, whether it's at a, a national or personal level, Wherever we are, if our desires are not submitted to God's word and the lordship of Christ, and, and often that can be mediated and verified by a believing community that can say, you're going off balance here, you're off check, or no, that's right. If we don't subject our desires to something higher than ourselves, we will run our lives into the ditch. And I see it happen all the time. We'll be like the man in Proverbs 7, the simple man, the foolish man, who's just wandering around and hearing the voice of the harlot that is wooing him inside to her bedchambers that lead to death. We have to be careful about the desires in our heart. We'll talk much more about that, a theology of desires, next week. I just want to set the stage. Let's move on. So that's the appeal of Babylon's uh, beauty. Let's talk about the, the, the temporary nature of Babylon's beauty, verse, starting at verse, uh, I'm going to start in verse 6. The end of verse 6. Listen, listen to what John says. When I saw her... He says, I marveled greatly, but the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I'll tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. Verse 8, the beast that you saw was and is not, 
and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to seven, and it goes to destruction. Verse 12, and the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beasts. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Verse 14, they will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Friends, um, here's an example, a perfect example of if you interpret the book of Revelation literally, you're going to crash your mind in a ditch, right? You're just going to go out of your mind, because if you just look at these few verses, Verse 9, we have the seven heads, or actually seven mountains, but they also turn out to be seven kings according to verse 12. But the ten horns are also ten kings, so we probably have 17 kings on seven hills, right? I have no idea what that's supposed to teach us. Verse 10 says five are fallen, one is, the seventh is coming, but he's really the eighth. And it goes on, it's just, I mean, it is a confusing mess here. And if you read the commentaries and the reference material on it, there are all kinds of beliefs of what this is trying to say and figure out these details. When I was in my 20s, in the 90s, I was taught that this was in reference to the European economic community, that these horns represented what's going on in Europe. And I thought, that's got to be it. And then I realized there's like 27 nations in the economic community, and there went that theory. Here's the problem again. We're looking at Revelation that way as a puzzle to figure out, and we're missing the painting. But there are clues all through this of how we're supposed to understand what's happening, one of which is John himself. Did you notice uh, verse 6, the very end we read? John is marveling. He's marveling at what he's seeing. Why? It's pretty clear this is a very impressive, almost overwhelming vision of this woman astride this powerful beast, the allure of economic, political, military, cultural power all coming together. And imagine John watching this and maybe thinking, maybe Christians are on the wrong side of history. Maybe we are. Maybe we got it wrong. I mean, this is impressive. It, it's overwhelming. I, I, there's no way to overcome this. I, I surrender. I give in. As a matter of fact, I, I actually want in. Maybe I ought to be living for this instead. You imagine John seeing this. And, and as I think about this, I was studying the passage, thinking about John marveling and the angel rebuking. I can imagine that you know, in my mind that the angel's massive and John is a little shorty guy standing next to him. And the angel's watching this with a kind of stoic calmness because he sees through the charade of the world. After all, this is one of the angels that was probably with us in chapters 4 and 5. He stands in the presence of the Almighty who was, who is, and is, is to come. He knows a shell game when he sees it. So as he's watching this unfold, though, he, he looks over at John, and you can almost imagine John's knees are kind of buckling, and he's marveling, and maybe the angel's thinking that John is, is buying the narrative of worldliness, that this is what we should live for instead. 
And, 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 and the, the angel says, John, why are you marveling? Do you, do you think this woman and this beast is all that in a bag of chips? Right? I can almost understand, feel the frustration of the angel because the angel saw John in the throne room in the vision of chapters 4 and 5 and says, are you serious right now? Are you watching this and you're tempted to buy into this? Let me tell you what's up. And notice what the angel says. And this is where I want you to read these verses. I'm going to read it through you, with you. And it's not about figuring out the details. If you read these verses of the angel who's befuddled at John's marveling, says, I'm going to tell you what's going on here. All we read about is several verses of just uh, descriptions of rising and falling. Brief moments of rule, 15 minutes of fame, and then no more, off to destruction. It's like William Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage, and the men and women are merely actors. They come on, do their role, and then they're gone. All through this, look at three times, verse 8 and verse 11, the angel says, this beast, this situation, they was, and they are not anymore. And when it does say it was and is and comes and is to come, it goes off to destruction. By the way, notice they're trying to riff again and copy the phrase we talk about the Lord, who was and is and is to come. The angel says, it was and was not. And the was that was and was not and is to come again, well, he just goes off to destruction really quickly. Verse 10, these kings are fallen, and they remain only a little while when they get their power. Verse 8 and 11 talks about them both going off to destruction. Verse 12, they receive their authority for only just a little hour. And then what happens? All how it culminates in verse 14. They'll make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. By the way, just so you know, this is the same thing. We just read about this, didn't we? Go to last week, chapter 16, verse 14. Do you remember this? For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. It's the same thing we just saw last week. Kingdoms rise and fall. People come and go. Desires entice us and they betray us. It just, it's a cycle that kind of goes and comes and goes and it means nothing. And notice, I see this note here in verse 13. These are, speaking of the kings and all that, they're of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Friends, the systems and the values and the things that we find desirable in this world, they have the power over us because we give it to them. We are the ones giving it to them, but the end result is destruction. Here's a point. Our desires are not objective. We'll talk more about this next week, but our desires are not objective. They don't float from the throne directly into our hearts. They, they get filtered through our, our experiences, our culture, our values. And at any one of those checkpoints, if our values, our culture, our experiences are not conformed to the word of God, our desires are going to get twisted. And we see in verse 13, we, we give all of our power to these things to rule over us. And the angel says, John, you are missing out. You see why the angel's rebuking John John, be impressed by the right things. John, discern what true beauty is. John, be impressed by real, true strength. Friends, are you impressed by the wrong things? Does this world impress you? Do the things of this world, the things that seem beautiful, are you amazed and finding beautiful that which is not beautiful? Are you, like John, tempted to buy the narrative of worldliness around you, that this is what it's all about, this is what we should live for? If so, 
hear the rebuke of the angel that is incredulous. Why would you marvel at this? Now, I'm not saying, friends, that the particulars of Revelation is not important. Some people thought these seven kings represented the seven anti-Christian empires of, of, of old. Babylon, Assyria, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, some, some others. Some have believed that these were the Caesars of Rome, the seven Caesars. Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero, Vespasian, and Titus. That might be, right? But, but if that's how we read Revelation, then that means our, our brothers and sisters in Africa... Uh, in the Amazon, our brothers and sisters in Japan have to know European history to understand Revelation 17. I don't think that's how it works. The message that we see here, don't marvel at the deceptive beauty of this world that comes and goes, rises and falls, grabs our attention only to lose it. All these are fading away, as verses 15 to 18 show us next. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Again, reinforcing the concept that, that the whole of the world, all nations, all tribes, have been seduced by Babylon. Verse 16, and the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put into their hearts to carry out his purposes by being of one mind and have, handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So we see here the beast and the harlot turn on each other. Really sort of the beast turns on the harlot. And it's really ironic, isn't it, that she represents uh, sensuality and pleasure and in the end, she's treated like a prostitute and discarded just as easily. How fragile the relationship between the things we fear and the things we desire. We spend our entire lives serving one or the other, living for the things that we desire or living in fear of the things that rule over us until the end. They just turn on each other. And did you notice, but in the background, verse 17, all the while, God is working his plan. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purposes. Friends, the world is bankrupt. Its powers, its attractions are temporary at best. And I know, because I live in the world with you, it seems like they're the ones in control. It seems like everything around us is permanent. But God's word says they're just literally a verse or two away from tearing each other apart. The message is not to fear the beast. The message is not to desire the prostitute. Because the powers or pleasures of this world cannot last and they do not satisfy. And if you are trying to satisfy yourselves on the power and pleasures of this world, you will be betrayed. Because we're seeing it here. They betray themselves. The message of Revelation 17 is to follow the Lamb, right? Look at verse 14. They'll make war on the Lamb, but the Lamb will conquer them. I know following after Christ does not seem powerful. Following after Christ never seems as desirable. I get it. The metaphors tell us that, right? What seems more powerful, a lamb or a beast, right? What's, what's more alluring to us? A lamb or a beautiful woman dressed in all kinds of fine clothing with gold and pearls. 
So that even the metaphors recognize the difficulty that we are faced with. But we know what scripture teaches us. The lamb is both powerful and desirable. My friends, if you are following after the beauty of this world, the desires, as John says, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, stop. Revelation 17 is trying to let you see the end of those things and to call you to follow after the Lamb of God who gave his life for us. He and his is a beauty that never betrays. He is, after all, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the king of the beasts, right? He is the desire of all the nations. And next week, when we look at Revelation 18, we'll see just how empty and ugly the beauties of this world are apart from Christ and how they ultimately end. And I hope you come back for that. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.